We finished last week with that section of the Psalter known as the Songs of Ascent uh, from Psalm 120 through Psalm 134. And as we carry on tonight, we find ourselves in Psalm 135 this evening and turning to another of what are called the Hallelujah Psalms. There are ten Hallelujah Psalms sprinkled throughout the last third of the book of Psalms, and they're called Hallelujah Psalms because all ten of them begin with the Hebrew word Hallelujah, or praise the Lord when it's brought over into English. And I'll leave it to you as homework to discover which ten Psalms fit in that category, and maybe for extra credit you can track down the eight of the ten that also end with the word hallelujah as well. But this evening we're going to focus just on one of the hallelujah psalms, the fifth out of ten, here in the form of Psalm 135. So follow along with me now as I read it aloud. Praise the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Praise him, O servants of the Lord, you who stand in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the house of our God. Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing praises to his name, for it is lovely, for the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel for his own possession. For I know that the Lord is great, and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and in earth, in the seas and in all deeps. He causes the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain, who brings forth the wind from his treasuries. He smote the firstborn of Egypt, both of man and beast. He sent signs and wonders into your midst, O Egypt, upon Pharaoh and all his servants. He smote many nations and slew mighty kings, Sion, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan, and all the kingdoms of Canaan. And he gave their land as a heritage, a heritage to Israel, his people. Your name, O Lord, is everlasting. Your remembrance, O Lord, throughout all generations For the Lord will judge his people and will have compassion on his servants. The idols of the nations are but silver and gold, the work of man's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. They have eyes, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear, nor is there any breath at all in their mouths. Those who make them will be like them. Yes, everyone who trusts in them. O house of Israel, bless the Lord. O house of Aaron, bless the Lord. O house of Levi, bless the Lord. You who revere the Lord, bless the Lord. Blessed be the Lord from Zion, who dwells in Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. Father, I pray now that you would work so that we would leave tonight praising you all the more. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now it's clear, I hope, that the motif of this psalm is that we should praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, verse 1a. Praise the name of the Lord, verse 1b. Praise him, O servants of the Lord, verse 1c. And then there's also this fourfold call to bless the Lord, which is really the same idea in verses 19 and 20. And then there's the hallelujah or the praise the Lord at the very end of the psalm as well. And so I say that surely it's clear that this, the praise of the Lord, is the theme of Psalm 135. And surely it's also clear from the fact that there are nine more 
Hallelujah Psalms and from the fact that there are plenty of other praise Psalms as well, surely it's clear from the great emphasis on praise throughout the Psalter, in other words, that praise is not just the motif tonight, but that it is one of the chief activities, one of the chief themes of the life of faith in general. Praise is one of the principal activities of the Christian life. That's one of the great lessons that the book of Psalms should teach us. And praise should be one of our principal activities in our public gatherings for worship, in our family devotions, in our own private prayer life, and even when we gather socially as believers as well. One of the real blessings that sometimes occurs when a handful of us are gathered in someone's living room is that someone will sometimes suggest that we sing. And that's a good thing. And that's a normal thing in the Christian life because praise is a normal part of the Christian life. It's not just that the people who have an aptitude for singing will sing when they happen to be together, but that Christians will sing and praise when they come together. This is normal to us. It's normal for us to sing to the Lord. And it's natural, too, for the Christian to want to speak his praise as well in just the normal prose of everyday speech. Our prayers, in other words, not just our songs, but our prayers should include words of praise And it's good, in addition to singing, that we also share praises in our regular voices, too, at the beginning of these Wednesday gatherings. And it's good if we do the same sort of thing in our family devotionals, and if we just praise the Lord one to another in our regular conversations as well, talking about how the Lord has been good to us this week or what we've seen of him in his word. So there are different times and places for praise, and really no time or place is a time or place where we shouldn't praise the Lord. And there are different words of praise, sometimes set to meter with a tune and sometimes just spoken in our normal cadence. But whenever and however and with whatever kinds of voices and with whomever, what this psalm and this psalter and this book of God as a whole enjoin us to do over and again is to praise the Lord. And I just want you to think about that for a moment and ask yourself whether praise is as normal a part of your life as it seems to be in the scriptures. Do you sing to the Lord? When we gather here, do you sing? Do you sing to the Lord in other times of your life? Do you offer praises as part of your daily prayer life? Is there a place for praise in your family worship? Does it ever occur to you to suggest a few hymns when fellow believers are gathered, just hanging out. Some of us may be convicted sometimes about the sour role that complaining plays in our daily lives, and that's a good thing if we're convicted about complaining. But you know the opposite of complaining is not just cessation from complaining. The opposite of complaining is praise to the Lord. For others of us, the problem may not just be complaining But it may be that we're just not generally as thankful as we ought to be even when we're happy with our lot in life. It's easy to take God and his gifts for granted, just like a child receiving a lollipop from one of the grown-ups at the back door on a Sunday afternoon and having to be coaxed by her parents with the question, now what do you say? We all know that question, right? Our parents ask us, it back in the day and we've all asked it of our own children if we have them so we watch them tearing into the tootsie pot without returning thanks to the person who gave it now what do you say 
But, you know, sometimes we need a little coaxing like that as adults, too, and that's what this psalm will help us with. When it comes to the praises that ought to be coming from our lips towards God, we need some help, too. God has been so good to you, Christian. So what do you say? Wouldn't it be good if praise and thanks became normal to us toward God the way we're trying to instill it as a normalcy in our children towards other people who give them gifts? And so just think about it in your own life. Am I a person of praise? Am I, as David put it in Psalm 29, ascribing to the Lord the glory due to his name? And however you're doing on this front, coming in tonight, may it be that you leave even all the more eager to praise the Lord, praise the name of the Lord, praise him, O servants of the Lord. Now, you may have noticed in verse 2 some of the same target audience that we saw in Psalm 134 last week. In other words, as the psalmist tonight enjoins us to praise the Lord, he seems to be talking to some of the same sorts of people that were being talked to in the psalm last week. Do you remember Psalm 134? The first two verses of that song were sung as an encouragement to those men, the priests and Levites of the Old Testament, whose job it was to serve the Lord by working their various shifts in the temple complex, keeping the lamps lit, keeping the fire burning on God's God's altar, singing the daily even song, and so on. Psalm 134, verses 1 and 2, is addressed to those men who work in the temple. It is they whom the psalm is particularly enjoining to praise the Lord there. Behold, bless the Lord, all servants of the Lord who serve by night in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands to the sanctuary and bless the Lord. And you may hear some echo to that same target audience in verses 1 and 2 of this psalm. Tonight, praise the Lord, praise the name of the Lord, praise him, O servants of the Lord, you who stand in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the house of our God. The psalmist in both of these psalms, verses 1 and 2, seems particularly to be invoking the praise of the men who serve the Lord in the temple in the days of old. And that he is speaking directly to those men is even more explicit in verses 19 and 20, where he says, O house of Aaron... Bless the Lord. Those are the priests. O house of Levi, bless the Lord. And so the psalmist here once again makes particular application to those men who are called to lead God's people, to those men who are set aside for special service in his house. And as we make application of that today, it puts the question of praise even more squarely to those of us who are elders and deacons who serve the Lord in this peculiar way today. Elders and deacons, we of all men ought to be glad to sing to the Lord. We of all men ought to lead our families in praise. We of all men ought to be thankful to him and offer praise to him in our own private devotional lives. And we of all men ought to be comfortable speaking of the goodness of God just in our everyday conversations. It's our calling Men, to stand in the house of the Lord, verse 2, like the priests and Levites of old, ministering to the Lord, ministering to his people. And part of that ministry is to be men who, in public, as this psalm speaks about, and in private as well, men who have the praises of God often on our lips. 
So, elders and deacons, let's do that. We have so much to be thankful for, as we'll begin to see in just a few moments. And therefore, let us hear and heed the exhortation tonight. Praise the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Praise him, O servants of the Lord, you who stand in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the house of our God. But then let's remember what we said last week also, all of us, namely that in the new covenant, we are all priests to our God, serving under the great high priest, Jesus, so that you cannot write yourself out of the application of this psalm if you're not an elder or a deacon tonight either. We all in the New Testament stand in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the house of our God, serving him as priests with the veil torn in two and access each one of us, to the throne of grace through Christ. And to make matters all the more clear, notice verses 19 and 20 again now that while this psalm, while this call to praise the Lord was indeed issued specifically to the priests and the Levites, yet the call to praise the Lord was also issued specifically in verses 19 and 20 to the whole nation as well. It doesn't just say, house of Aaron, house of Levi, bless the Lord, but at the beginning of verse 19, house of Israel, bless the Lord. You who revere the Lord, bless the Lord. So if you're a Christian, if you're someone who reveres the Lord, you're called upon, leader or not, to bless the Lord, to praise the Lord. And so, of course, the call to praise tonight extends to us all. Every voice in this room, which belongs to Christ, ought to be used for his glory in the praise of the Lord, publicly and privately, formally and informally, in poetry and in prose, with melody and in the cadences of everyday speech. Praise the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Praise him, O servants of the Lord. O house of Israel, bless the Lord. Verse 21, praise the Lord. So if you're taking notes this evening or just trying to keep track in your mind, you might call the first few minutes of the sermon tonight the what, and then you might call these last several minutes the who. What does this psalm call us to do? Praise the Lord, verse 1. And who should be doing the blessing? The house of Israel, the house of Aaron, the house of Levi, you who revere the Lord, all of us. In verses 19 and 20. The what and the who, and then sandwiched in between those two bookends, is a long list of reasons why. And so that's our third and final, but much longer heading this evening the why of our praise. The why of our praise. And you can see that the psalmist is going to answer the question why. Because after he repeats the command to praise the Lord at the beginning there of verse 3, he follows the command to praise the Lord with the word for, which is a synonym for because. So, praise the Lord three times in verse 1, and then in verse 3, praise the Lord again for or because of such and such reasons, which he's going to list. And notice that he doesn't just use this word for or because there in verse 3a. He also uses it in the middle of verse 3. He also uses it at the beginning of verse 4 and again at the start of verse 5. 
which is simply to say that after saying over and over again in the first two and a half verses that we should praise the Lord, the middle of the psalm now, beginning in verse 3 and going down through verse 18, is going to answer what for? What is the reason why we should praise the Lord? So just listen, listen as he begins to unfold that so that you can see the why in behind the word for praise the lord for the lord is good sing praises to his name for it is lovely for the lord has chosen jacob for himself israel for his own possession for i know that the lord is great and that our lord is above all gods and then the rest of this section as i say down through verse 18 is going to expound on those what fors or whys of our praise. And as I looked over the psalm, it seemed to me that we could summarize the whys. We could summarize what the psalmist is saying here, at least the whys of the praise of the Lord that he presents in this psalm. We can summarize them under five headings, five reasons to praise the Lord in this psalm. There are others in other places, but five in this psalm, none of which will be new to you, but all of which I hope will be fresh to you as we see them again tonight. So maybe something like those cyclists in last Saturday's Olympics. You can picture yourself now midway through the race with five turns to go, and around every one of them is exquisite scenery, wonderful reasons to praise our God. And for the first one, we're actually going to reach back a little bit into verse 1 one more time. So why praise the Lord? Number one, we should praise the name of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord there in the middle of verse 1 or in verse 3. Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing praises to his name, for it is lovely. Now, in some ways, this is a summary statement of the four points that are going to follow, because when we praise the name of the Lord, we are praising God for who he is. His name represents his person, his character, his attributes, his being. His name speaks of who he is. And so when we're told to praise the name of the Lord, what we're being enjoined to do in a summary way is to praise God for his various attributes all wrapped up into one undivided person. And we'll unpack some of those attributes as we go along in the next few minutes and in the next four points. But let me just say also that when we think about the name of the Lord, we think not only of how the phrase the name of the Lord is sort of an overarching way of describing all of who God is, but when we think about the Lord's name, we also should think about his memorial name, Yahweh, or Lord, printed in all caps in most of our English Bibles. And indeed, that name is all throughout this psalm. I didn't count how many times that the name of the Lord, all caps, appears in this psalm, but it is a multitude. Indeed, it's even used here in verse 1 when the psalmist tells us to praise the name of the Lord. Praise the name of Yahweh, in other words. And what does that name, Yahweh, mean? Well, we learned from the book of Exodus sometime back that God's memorial name, Yahweh, means I am. Moses said to God, Behold, I am going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am 
who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. So when we boil it down to God's memorial name, Yahweh, it means very simply, I am. It's a description of his self-existence, of the fact that he didn't come from anywhere, that he was not created by anyone, that he is not dependent on anything outside of himself, that he did not have a beginning, as we learn in verse 13, and that he'll have no end. God simply is uncreated, unchanging, eternal, independent God. You are not like that, and I am not like that, but God simply is, and we should praise him for it. Praise the name of the Lord. Praise the name of Yahweh. Praise God because he is the self-existent one, the I am But then number two, we should praise the name of the Lord, verse three, for the Lord is good. Yahweh, the name of the Lord, refers to who the Lord is and always will be, irrespective of whether he had ever created you and I or not. And the Lord is good is the same way he would be good whether you and I existed or not. But here's an attribute that we specifically relate to because his goodness overflows so abundantly upon us, doesn't it? Praise the Lord for the Lord is good. And in what ways is the Lord good? But we could list numerous ways, and you must praise the Lord specifically for the ways in which he is good to you on a daily basis. But let me just point out a few ways in which the psalmist extols God's goodness in this psalm. One is that he mentions, down in verse 12, how God gave his people a land in which to dwell. And we'll come back and talk about God giving them that land in connection with Israel's redemption in just a few moments. There was an important reason for that land. But for now, let's just notice and remember from the Old Testament that God gave his people somewhere to live, a homeland, after all those years of wandering in the wilderness. And let that fact remind you, even apart from the special significance of Israel's homeland, let it remind you of what the book of Acts says, which is that God has appointed the boundaries of habitation for us all. God has provided a home for us all. And let it make you thankful that God has appointed boundaries for you. And God has given you a home. He's given you the home you live in right now. So that you have a roof over your head and a place to sleep. And a spot for entertaining friends and showing biblical hospitality. He also appointed you a growing up home. Some may think their growing up homes were better than others. Some probably were better than others, but it was a place where you were fed, clothed. For many of you, it was the place where you first learned the gospel. He's given you a home country and a home state and a hometown, which has been the site of many of his dealings with you down through the years. He's given you a home church, maybe one in which you grew up. This one as well, for many of you, where you receive spiritual food and shelter and rest, and so on. And so, verse 3a, praise the Lord, for the Lord is good, in that he has given you a home, a heritage, similar to what he did for Israel. But then notice his goodness also in verse 14, for the Lord will judge his people and will have compassion 
on his servants. Think about how many times the Lord has shown compassion toward you. Healing your diseases, comforting you in your grief, providing when finances were tight, answering your desperate prayers, forgiving your sins, and so on. Indeed, you might have an example of his compassion even from his dealings with you in the last week. You should call it to mind tonight and praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. He will have compassion on his servants. And then still thinking about God's goodness, notice in verse 21 that our God is called the Lord who dwells in Jerusalem. The Lord who dwells in Jerusalem. The Lord, in other words, who dwells among his people. That was the significance of the temple, at least one of the great significances of the temple and its placement in Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the capital city, so that what God was doing in dwelling in Jerusalem was showing that I'm dwelling among my people. And he does that today, too, does he not? As the Spirit indwells the saints, and as Christ promises to come and be with us whenever we gather in his name, even in twos or threes. The Lord dwells among his people today. He is with us even tonight. And sometimes we peculiarly sense his presence, don't we? So that we can say with the psalmist Asaph, the nearness of God is my good. God is near. Jesus promises to dine with us in Revelation 3 if we will open the door to his knocking. God promises to be near to the brokenhearted in Psalm 34. And Jesus says he will be with us even to the end of the age, as we go out to all the nations making disciples of them. And I say to you, this is a part of God's goodness as well. This is reason to praise him, that he's not a God who's simply far away, though he is transcendent, utterly different from us, high in the heavens, and yet by his spirit he is near. And he is near because he is good. Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good, who dwells in Jerusalem. So that's the second reason to praise the Lord tonight, for the Lord is good. Number three, we should praise the Lord for our redemption. Praise the Lord for our redemption. Look at verse four. For the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel for his own possession. And how did God work that choice of Jacob, of Israel, out? By redeeming them from Egypt in verses 8 and 9 and bringing them into the land of promise in verses 10, 11, and 12. And so you see that central to this psalm is the fact that God redeemed his people. Six verses are given to this topic. God's choosing a people for himself and redeeming them from their slavery and bringing them into their rest. And of course, that's not just a key theme to this psalm. It's the key theme to the whole Bible, isn't it? God's choosing a people for himself and redeeming them from their slavery and bringing them into their rest. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ, pictured in the great redemption of the Old Testament and enacted by his own blood on the cross. Because remember, when it came time for God to fulfill the Old Testament portrait of redemption, he did not, this time around, shed the blood of Egypt's firstborn, as in verse 8, he shed the blood of his own firstborn. 
in order to redeem his people. And when it came time for God to bring his people into their gospel rest, he did not smite the kings of Canaan, as in verses 10 and 11, but he smote, rather, the king of kings in order to grant his people rest. All so that he might redeem his people, whom he has chosen for himself, and bring us into his rest. And so, if, if the saints of old could praise God, if the psalmist in Psalm 135 could praise God because he had chosen them and struck Egypt's firstborn and brought them out of slavery and slew mighty kings and brought them into the land of promise, if they could praise God for that earthly redemption, how much more should we praise God for a heavenly one? If they could praise God for redemption from slavery to Pharaoh, how much more should we praise him for redemption from slavery to sin and to Satan and to death? And if they could praise God that he shed Egyptian blood and Canaanite blood in order to save them, how much more should we praise him who understand that it is the blood of Jesus, his son, that cleanses us from all sin? He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. And oh, says Wesley, for a thousand tongues to sing about a king like that. And oh, for a thousand tongues to sing the praises of the Father who ordained it all out of love for us poor, miserable, helpless sinners. And I tell you, even if you could think of nothing else for which to praise your God. And you can think of a thousand other things if your eyes are open and you're looking. But even if you could think of nothing else to praise God for, you can always, always praise the Lord for the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. For how he chose you, verse 4. For how he shed blood to save you, verses 8 through 11. For how he has provided rest for you, verse 12. All in Christ Jesus. Praise the Lord for your redemption. And then fourthly, praise the Lord that he is above all gods. For I know, verse 5, that the Lord is great and that our Lord is above all gods. And then down in verses 15 through 18, he expounds on that. The idols of the nations are but silver and gold, the work of man's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. They have eyes, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Nor is there any breath at all in their mouths. Those who make them will be like them. Yes, everyone who trusts in them. Now, I know we live in a time and place in which, by and large, people don't worship statues made of silver or gold, as the psalmist is describing here. Our gods today are a little more subtly disguised. But our culture does have its gods nonetheless, doesn't it? None greater, I think, in these current days than things like a moral autonomy in all matters sexual, a rampant materialism, wall-to-wall entertainment, the ability to have whatever we want whenever we want it. These are the true American idols. But you know, like the idols of old, which could neither see nor hear nor speak, so also our American idols, our Western idols, will prove in the end just as unable to satisfy as the statues of old. 
Because what good will the gadgets do you when you're lying on your deathbed or when your child is diagnosed with leukemia? And what will you have to show for all your money and possessions when your body is lying silent in the grave? And what will you say to God when you have to give an account to him for having passed your body around from person to person like a library book? If you give yourself to these gods, you will become as useless as they are, verse 18, as impotent as they are, as sad a sight as they are, and just as there is not any breath at all in their mouths, so it will be for you in the end if you bow to these gods. But if God is your God, if God is the one to whom you bow, then you will have hope in death and his nearness when your heart is broken and your money will have been invested in things that you'll actually be able to see when you die and your body will have become more and more a temple of the Holy Spirit rather than a dirty magazine passed around to a bunch of users who only wanted a thrill and not a commitment. God, I tell you, is far above all gods, whether the old gods or the new gods, the metal gods or the plastic gods, the tangible gods or the intangible gods. They have mouths, but they do not speak. They have eyes, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear, nor is there any breath at all in their mouths. But, verse 6, whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and in earth, in the seas and in all deeps. And that brings us to our fifth and final reason from this psalm tonight, why we should praise the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord, verses 1 and 3. Praise the Lord for he is good, verse 3, and several other verses as well. Praise the Lord for your redemption, verses 4 and 8 through 12. Praise the Lord that he is above all gods, verse 5 and 15 through 18. And finally, fifthly, praise the Lord for his sovereign power. For his sovereign power, whatever the Lord pleases, he does, verse 6, in heaven and in earth, in the seas and in all deeps. And then we're given two somewhat diverse examples of this sovereign power of God. One is in a thunderstorm in verse 7. Do you notice that? It's describing a thunderstorm, the Lord bringing clouds from the other side of the earth, bubbling up and pouring down rain upon the land, electricity from the Lord brightening up the sky, and the Lord also storing up and sending forth wind from his treasuries. Now, any one of those things, clouds, rain, lightning, wind, any one of those things is powerful in and of itself. But see if you don't feel small and these things great when they all come together in a single thunderstorm. Next time you see a thunderstorm, don't go outside in it, but pretend that you're outside in it with the clouds bubbling up and the rain falling in torrents and the lightning like fireworks upon the night sky and the wind stripping the leaves off the trees and ask yourself if this storm is so powerful What of the one who sent it? And then see if you can't praise God for his might on display before your eyes. 
In the same way, and even I hope far more significantly than you might praise an Olympic gymnast to your spouse sitting next to you on the couch for how strong this man must be to hold himself parallel to the floor, holding on to a pair of rings suspended from the ceiling. Look at this, honey. How on earth does he do that? See, we do know how to offer praise in our everyday conversation, don't we? Some of us have been sitting on the couch in recent evenings watching these athletes in Rio and praising aloud what we see. And it's not a bad thing. But we should say to ourselves, if they are that powerful, if they are that strong to do the things they're doing, what about God who sent them? And should we not speak of him when we see a thunderstorm in much the same way? How on earth does he do that? God, you are amazing. Whatever you please, you do in heaven and in earth, in the seas and in all deeps. And then there's a display of God's power in those events in verses 8 through 12 upon which we've already touched. We thought about the redemptive result that God brought about for Israel when he smote Pharaoh and Og and Sion and so on. But I, I want you not now to think mainly about the redemption, but just, just zoom in on the power of God that it took to accomplish these things, particularly in the case of Egypt. He smote the firstborn of Egypt, both of man and beast. He sent signs and wonders into your midst, O Egypt, upon Pharaoh and all his servants. Do you remember how that all played out in the book of Exodus? It made a thunderstorm on a summer afternoon seemed like just turning on the water faucet if you had lived in Egypt in those days. The blood, the frogs, the hailstones, the darkness, and so on. And then the plague of the firstborn. All this shows us for sure the love of God for the people whom he was redeeming, but it also shows us the power of God, again, over the elements, and the power of God to accomplish whatever he chooses to do. Pharaoh was the most powerful man in the world, and God manhandled him like you or I breaking a toothpick between our fingers, culminating in the parting and then the reclosing of the Red Sea. And all that power was wielded both then and now for the good of his people. And so in light of this kind of God, I ask you in the words of your parents when you were a little boy or girl, what do you say? What do we say about and to a God like this God? A God who does whatever he pleases. A God who wields all the power that there is in heaven and earth. And he wields it for the good of his people and for the redemption of his own. What do we say? Blessed be the Lord, verse 21. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah to the Lord. How on earth, God, do you do that? And can it be that you do it for my good? A born rebel now made your child? Praise the Lord. For the Lord is good. Sing praises to his name, for it is lovely. Father, thank you for your word in this psalm. Thank you for the power that you display, the goodness that you display to us in the gospel, particularly as we think it out from the implications of this psalm. Thank you for the power of the cross and the love of the cross. And I pray that 
more than any thunderstorm, more than any uh, athlete created in your image, more than even the plagues in Egypt and the parting of the Red Sea, that we would look at the gospel and look at your son and praise the Lord. We ask in his name. Amen.